Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So I remember the first time that I played guitar to something called a click track. Does anybody know what a click track is? Anybody ever played to a click track? Okay, so a click track is a digital metronome. So you guys know what a metronome is? So music is played to a time signature, right? So like a 4-4 time would be 1, 2, 3, 4. That clap is the metronome. So uh, what happened is, is, and what that does is that time signature Every instrument is to play on that time signature because if you don't, the whole thing falls apart, right? Because then you have people playing at different times. It's like offensive linemen doing different blocking schemes, right? It just doesn't work, right? So, so I went into this recording studio to record an album, and I had my guitar, and I put on these headphones, and I'm ready to play a song that I had written that I had played hundreds of times. And then the click track started. It's hard to play perfect. <laughs> like, the digital metronome is just a steady, constant, perfect boom, boom. And you've got to match everything you do for the entire song to that metronome. And it took me close to three hours to play a five-minute song. The click was relentless. And I'm with this. I'm in the studio, and the producer, who's really patient, is just watching me. He's like, "We'll start it again. We'll start it again." And I'm just like, "Ah!" I found myself getting really, really frustrated, and I just couldn't get it at first. I went in thinking, "Man, I know how to play guitar until perfect was my standard." And at first, I blamed the click track. It was too loud. It was too soft. It didn't make the right sound. I blamed the headphones. I needed one ear off. I needed both ear on. Then I blame my guitar that I somehow didn't sit on my knee right. The strings are old. Like, I don't know. I just blamed everything. Then I started to, to blame, you know, like the volume of my guitar wasn't loud enough. And then it was too loud. And then I got frustrated with the chair I was sitting on. And then my guitar pick, for some reason, started not to feel right in my hand. Like, it was a very frustrating. And then after a while, the producer just patiently looked at me and went, have you ever played to a click track before? And I'm like, no. And I felt this instant shame. I was kind of embarrassed because the truth is the click track wasn't the problem. I was. It's perfect consistency exposed my lack of ability. However, once I stopped fighting the click track, that simple tool made me better. I grew to learn how to lean on it for the rest of the recording. And instead of seeing it as an adversary that was harming me or something to be feared, I grew grateful for it. And I actually found it, it made the song better, it made me a better guitar player, and it just caused the whole process to go better. See, all through the scriptures, God is seen as perfect and consistent. He never wavers. He never changes. He is perfectly consistent and consistently perfect. 
Unlike the click track I played to, though, that was simply this impersonal, digitally produced timekeeper. Boop, 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 beep, boop. I mean, oh, I can still hear it in my head. God is shown to be a very personal and alive creator that is, that is engaged in what he has made. And he's engaged it in his perfect consistency for his glory and for our good. And as we progress through not only Genesis, but the whole scriptures, God does not change. He does not change who he is. He does not change how he interacts with us. See, there's this view that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And that, is, that, that, that just exposes that when that statement is, is made, you just haven't read the Bible. He's the same God throughout the entire thing. And we see that God is, is entirely self-sufficient, that he has been perfect and consistent forever in the past, that he is now and he will forever be in the future. And his plan for how his will is accomplished is revealed to us, though, in what is called a progressive manner. But it doesn't mean that God is changing or creating his plan along the way trying this first and then learning something from that and then from what he learns he applies something new and then he's like oh darn it that didn't work so now I'm going to try that's not what God is doing God is consistent God is perfect and God is accomplishing his plan in keeping with his perfect consistency in these opening chapters of Genesis the reason why we keep going over this is cuz it's so important that we learn this narrative because the narrative of Genesis and the narrative of the Bible is what I pray, well not I pray, it's what the Bible holds out. This is the narrative we should live our lives in, right? In these opening chapters, we see that, 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 that there are some really important things that reveal to us showing how God is perfectly and consistently moving the world forward. These things have not changed and they will not change because they have been established by a God that will not change and does not change. So, for example, here are some of those things. His plan for creation, that all things exist for his glory, and his desire for creation is that it would be his dwelling place where all things are whole and he is with his people. His plan for mankind has never changed. His plan for mankind is that his image bearers would fill the earth, that they would worship him and they would be living in his place as his people under his loving care. See, there's this narrative going on that, that, that human beings are the virus on the planet. That is such an anti-biblical statement because the scriptures tell us that no, actually God made the planet for us. And we are to be fruitful and multiply and to fill it. Another aspect of, of his plan that we've seen is that how God deals with sin and evil. He is entirely consistent with this. And here's what we've seen and what you will continue to see. God hates it. Now, I know we're used to hearing that God is all love and that all this stuff. But, but there are things God absolutely hates. He hates sin and he hates evil. He will always judge it according to his goodness and according to his justice. 
And he is bringing all sin and evil to a final conclusion where it is all wiped away forever. Another thing that we see that's consistent is how he redeems. The redemption of mankind and therefore creation is only accomplished by God himself, by his own actions, by his own mercy and grace. It is, thank God he has not put that on me. Thank God you don't have to wear that you need to fix yourself. That is a, that's called religion, and it kills you. God redeems in a much better way. We've seen all of this played out in these opening chapters. God, God, God established all things in wholeness. He made us male and female in his image. He gives us commands to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, which means that we were called to take righteousness and justice and holiness in the image of God and extend that through the earth. However, we didn't want to do that. We rebelled. We rejected him as God wanting to be God, and just as God is perfect and consistent, man, uh, mankind, because of this rejection, we became, in, we became consistently imperfect. God is perfect and consistent. We became consistently imperfect. Sure, there are moments of faithfulness, but these aren't long-lived. I mean, Adam and Eve, they were faithful for a while, but rejected God, disobeyed him, believed the lies of Satan, cast out of the garden, Abel, who was faithful, however, was murdered like eight seconds into living, <laughs> right? Noah was faithful, but what you see if you keep going in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah, as soon as he comes out of the ark, he does so many good things, right? And then he gets totally schnockered drunk in his tent, totally naked, and his son Ham comes in and makes fun of him, <laughs> right? And we see just this recklessness of the whole family that is starting to happen here. Each failure and rejection resulted in God's judgment. Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. Cain, who was Abel's murderer, is forced to wander the earth with a mark of shame. Mankind is nearly wiped out by a flood. Noah, because of that incident that occurs with his son Ham, he actually brings a curse upon Ham and his descendants. And it all shows that God will always judge sin. However, we also see God's faithfulness to his plan. He does not give up on seeing his image bearers fill the earth. God extends grace to us even when he doesn't have to. To be honest, that's what makes it grace. See, let's not think that grace is something we're owed. That's not grace. That's called a wage. When I work for you, give me my money. That's not grace. Please, let us not put God's grace in the same position as a wage. Grace is something God gives when he doesn't have to in spite of us. And these moments of grace, they're wedded, interestingly enough, to moments of judgment. We, we, you'll see all through the scriptures that God brings, uh, gets glory as he brings salvation even through judgment. Attention we must never lose. Adam and Eve, though barred from the garden, are given clothing to cover their shame with a great promise that one day, one will be born of a woman, of a mom. And through this, evil will be destroyed. Cain's mark that was a curse was also uh, a protection that God gave him. 
mankind is not completely destroyed, but is saved through a man named Noah, who also his family are brought into that. A family command, uh, was also given the very same command Noah's family was after they leave the ark. Isn't it interesting? You look at, at Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. God says to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same command he gave to Adam and Eve is the same command he gives to Noah. This is the story that God is showing himself perfect and consistent. He will not abandon us. He will not abandon the world. Yes, he'll deal with sin. And at the same time, he will save his people according to the plan he made before time, which all has its fulfillment in Jesus. This is human history's story. And the God behind it is perfect and consistent. It will keep moving right where he desires so creation and mankind fulfill its purpose. Sin will be dealt with, and salvation will be complete. We must not lose that. Because if we lose that, we'll begin to think, we'll just read the newspapers and think it's all going to pot. There's no hope. Abandon all hope, ye who enter. No, that God is holding it all. And this is all good news, because let's be honest, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are a train wreck. They're pretty frustrating. People continue to descend into sin over and over and over again. Even after God started over with Noah, it's like a broken record that just skips at the same line in the song that sticks in your head and you just get sick of it after a while. See, our hearts are still inclined toward evil from the days of our youth, Genesis 8.21 says. But God, being perfect and consistent, works his plan. And so we find ourselves at chapter 11 where yet again the record skips. The same lyrics are sung again and God intervenes in order to see the plan of creation and mankind move forward. See, when we come to chapter 10, just real quick so we understand what's going on, we read an important genealogy. There's lots of genealogies in Genesis. And what, what we see is after the flood, Noah and his family leave and that mankind was obedient to uh, being fruitful and multiplied. There was a lot of babies being made. And, and these babies that were being made through uh, Noah's three sons, that these became clans and people groups that began to spread all over the world and created the nations that we see. And as Noah's sons grew into families, clans, and nations, they did so under the promise of God that he would not destroy all human flesh, which makes what we read in Genesis chapter 11 Verses uh, 1 through 9, so heartbreaking yet again. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 11, and I'm just going to read the first nine verses. This is the word of God. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down 
and there confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, uh, dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building their city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth. So our passage begins with some background information. We see that there's one language so everyone could communicate. People were migrating throughout the earth, living out what God intended, but then things began to go awry. They came to this place called Shinar. Geographically, this is like modern-day Iraq. It would be Mesopotamia. And they began to see the inclination, the, the inclination of man's heart once again begins to be bent away from God and towards ourselves. The will of the people was to build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens in order to make a name for themselves so that they would not be dispersed throughout the earth. And it's once again man asserting their own independence apart from God. It's an act of declaring man's self-sufficiency. In other words, man rejects God again. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, just like Cain did when he murdered Abel, and like mankind as a whole did prior to the flood. But why? How? Is God anti-city? Now, this preached differently when I was in Buffalo, New York, <laughs> right? You had to affirm them. God's not anti-city. We're in the rural areas. Kind of anti-city? <laughs> I kind of left there on purpose. Sorry, that's another story. That's another sermon. Is God, he's not anti-city, by the way. Uh, is, is he anti-human ingenuity? Does God not want people to be unified? Not at all. So why is this all bad? Because here's what, here's what ultimately is. Because God stands against human pride. God stands against human self-sufficient pride. But how does Genesis 11 show human pride? Number one. God's command to fill the earth is rejected. Notice what they said. So that we won't be dispersed through all the earth. Let's come together. Let's not spread across the earth. Let's make a city for ourselves. We're going to camp right here. This is equivalent to a child looking at their parents who love them and know what's best for them and saying no. The people have looked at the only one who has the right to rule and looked at his command to be fruitful, fill the earth, and multiply and said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We kind of reject that. We actually think that we have a much better plan. We know what's best. See, by not filling the earth, they're spurning God's purpose for creation and themselves. Number two, God's protection and provision is rejected. See, the tower and the city, these were ancient symbols meant to show strength and to provide protection. Instead of trusting God, they trust in themselves and in their own buildings. How foolish if you really think about it. And sad to think that meager buildings, no matter how strong or tall, to think cities and ingenuity could ever provide for us more and be stronger than the maker of heaven and earth who holds the oceans in his hands, who holds all things together. But this is exactly what's going on here. 
This is a lamentable action because the people are saying, God, we don't think you're good enough. Number three, God's glory is rejected. The worth of God is rejected because the intent of all of this is to bring about fame and immortality for themselves. There is no interest in making much of God. There is about making much of them. Look at how great our city is. Look at the height of our tower. It reaches right up to heaven. We don't need God. We are God. But don't miss the irony of verse 5. This is fantastic. This strong, high, and mighty tower that supposedly reaches to the heavens, God has to come down to see. What they've been able to build, it actually doesn't reach heaven at all. It's not even close. What, they're a, what, 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 what they are able to do compared to what God can do pales in comparison. As a matter of fact, I think one of the stunning things to show this, like I, I'm sure some of you have seen some really impressive archaeological feats. And then you look at a mountain. Look at an amazing archaeological or uh, uh, architectural feat. Stand next to the ocean. Look at the stars, and we kind of realize, like, man, God made us to do some really cool things, but not that. I can't make a mountain. Any pursuit, guys, please, please hear this. Any pursuit to make a name for ourselves over and against God's great name and glory are honestly fickle and pointless. No matter how big, no matter how grand, no matter how impressive, it will never be able to reach heaven. It will always be exposed for what it is, a cheap imitation. This doesn't mean not to work hard. It doesn't mean don't pursue your dreams. It doesn't mean that we don't want to go after big. God made us to do great things, but to do great things under the covering of his glory, under the covering that he's all there is, under the covering that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I want to do it for him, not me. I mean, think about the people in life and throughout history that have done remarkable things. We don't really remember them ultimately, do we? I was talking with some kids at football practice last year, and I said, that reminded me of Walter Payton. And they looked at me and went, who? <laughs> Completely broke my heart. I almost made him run. <laughs> the greatest running back in history. Oh, come on. He had a bought and paid for offensive line. Come on. No. <laughs> I mean, think about this guy. Again, this is not a kill your dreams thing. This is a put your dreams under the right context so that you can really be what God has called you to be. Seeking to be John Wayne leads you nowhere ultimately. Fourth, God himself is once again rejected. We see this in the desire for a man-centered unity. Here's the deal, guys. God does desire unity, but not a man-centered unity. Because here's what man-centered unity is going to bring. Some form of authoritative uh, uh, slavery. Someone's got to set the standard. As a matter of fact, if you go back in chapter 10, what seems to indicate here is the king over this city is a guy named Nimrod. Yeah, great name, right? 
Now you don't want to be a Nimrod. Then you wanted to be Nimrod. Nimrod was known as a mighty man. He was a mighty warrior. In other words, he was an authoritarian that said, this is what we will do. It is according to my standard, and I will oppress anyone who doesn't fit that standard. Man-centered authoritarianism or man-centered unity is ultimately not unity because none of us are self-sufficient saviors, gods, and makers. God does desire unity, but not a godless, man-centered one that stands over and against the one who made us all. This is man in one voice claiming their own self-sufficiency. We only need ourselves. We do not need you. This is corporate idolatry. It denies God's purpose. Any attempt to supplant God as God, this type of unity rests on the belief that we are able to provide, to protect, and to sustain ourselves apart from God. It is the height of human ego. But in the end, just like this city, which ends up incomplete, so too are all of our attempts at self-glorification, because only God and His Word stand the test of being truly glorious, truly magnificent, and worthy of being called God and worshiped as such. When God assesses what is taking place in this city, He does not find anything impressive or amusing. The human heart is once again exposed as prideful, and He renders judgment because God stands against human pride. He says in verse 6, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, here's what he's saying. Now that they've done this, the sky is the limit for them to do more evil. Can you think of a moment where you did something you knew you shouldn't, and then you were really nervous, and then you crossed the line, and you're like, oh, that would do bad, and then all of a sudden you keep going? And you keep going, and you keep going, and then you say, oh, it takes you to a place you never intended to go. That's what sin does. It takes you farther than you intend to go, and it keeps you there longer than you want to be. And God looks at what man's doing and going, if, I, if we allow this to go, who knows how much more evil this will go. See, guys, God sees sin far more seriously than we do. And it's not because he's a cosmic killjoy. It's because just like I want a doctor that looks at cancer in my body and ruthlessly goes after it, I want a God that ruthlessly sees sin because ultimately that is the cancer that kills you. That is the cancer that is not good for you. That is the cancer that is not good for our human society. It is the answer for why this world has been in such a mess that it is. And we think somehow we can control it and hold it and that it's not that big a deal. And God's like, this is what caused my son to be butchered for. This is what has brought death. This is what has brought mourning. This is what has brought all the suffering and hardship of life. Don't take it lightly. Because it's the cancer that's killing you. So in verses 7 and 9, we see the judgment he renders. He confuses language so they could no understand, they, they could no longer understand one another, halting their ability. So they have to scatter. See, God's judgment gets at the heart of the issue. He confuses their speech so they couldn't work together, and he scatters them throughout the earth so that they would not find ultimate security and glory in themselves through the means of man-centered unity. But even in this judgment, there is also grace. 
He does not take the same action he did prior to the flood killing them all, which he would have been in his right to do. The wages of, script, of sin, Scripture tells us, is death, but instead he remembers his promise. By executing this judgment, God in perfect consistency continued his plan for all creation of mankind. He scatters his image bearers throughout the face of the whole earth to work it and to keep it for his glory, which is what he intended in Genesis 1 and 2. He was also preparing for the establishment of a nation of Israel, his chosen people, and through this nation, the Savior that we all desperately needed would come. See, if you were to continue reading down through chapter 11, we see the descendants of Noah's son, Shem, who was one of the sons that received this blessing at the end of chapter 9. And it is through Shem's line that a man named Abram would be born. And Abram would marry a woman named Sarai, who we see in chapter 11, verse 30, that she was barren that she could not have a child. She could not be a mother. This is such a stark contrast compared to all the lineages that we have read so far. The genealogies of chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 11 show multiplication after multiplication after multiplication. And then all of a sudden, people having babies like crazy, now all of a sudden we see there's a married couple, barren. Why mention this at all? Wouldn't this be something you'd want to skip over? See, God is perfectly consistent in who He is and how He interacts. He has, he has had a plan since before the world was made regarding creation, mankind, and sin. He hinted at it in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would defeat the serpent. And it was hinted at again in the ark, which saved Noah and his family. And here we see another hint. A barren woman. How is a barren woman a hint? See, remember, God will deal with sin. He will judge it, but wedded to that judgment will also be mercy and grace. Only God can redeem us by His own work. Our works are just like the tower built in Babel. No matter how high into heaven we think we are, it doesn't come close. But just like in Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos and barrenness prior to creation and brought life by the power of His Word, God is preparing Abram and the dead womb of Sarai to give life to a child of promise. And through that child will come a nation. And from that nation will come a Savior, and that Savior is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is holy, He is blameless, and He is without fault, and yet He died on a cross in order to satisfy divine justice. He is risen from the grave, and He is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and it is through Christ that redemption is found. Redemption from our disobedience, redemption from our lack of trust, from our desire to be our own God. But this Savior is also the one through whom the entire world will be judged. It is through Christ God is redeeming a people for himself and sending them out to be his witnesses. And it is through Christ that all creation will be made new. It is in Christ that mankind is finally and fully unified. 
people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, every ethnicity come together as one, able now to understand one another, to worship together in love, peace, and wholeness. We see this tangibly demonstrated in Acts chapter 2 where people from the known world during the time of the first century hear the gospel preached through the apostles and are able to understand them in their own language and respond to Jesus in unity together. Acts chapter 2 is the counterpoint to Genesis 11, where now God establishes a holy unity around the Son. Yes, Genesis 11 is a judgment passage. Yes, we've seen mankind fall time and time again in these first 11 chapters, and we will see even more as we go on, but you also see hints of mercy. And I pray you see both today. As we close here, I pray that you are able to see that despite your best efforts to be your own God, you're actually rejecting the one true God. And he's offering you hope today. Just like there is hope at the end of chapter 11, a hope that on its own makes no sense, a barren woman? Where is the hope in that? But what is easily seen as a sad, barren woman, God is prepared to bring life to her that will change the course of history. Similar to the barren woman, it's easy to see Jesus as just another man, another religious teacher, another prophet among many, but God has raised him from the dead, showing that only he can bring life. Only he can change the course of your history and our history together. Are there babbles in your life that you're building? Where you're trying to build your own name and have God come along the way. God is like, it's not just about having a piece of me. It's all of me or none of me. God's not a Jedi that doesn't operate in absolutes. He's an absolute. And he's offering life today. He says, live for me and you will find a greater joy. Let your life be given to me and you will actually find the life that you're searching for. Build my name, work for my kingdom, allow my Savior to save you, and then from that live in newness of life. Oh, let's carry that out into Ringgold County today, this week, every day of our lives. Because God exalts the humble, but stands against the proud. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, we are thankful for the truth that is found in your word. We are thankful, God, that you are a perfectly consistent God who, yes, will deal with all the things that have broken this world, but God, you will fully save, redeem, and restore every person that comes to you. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 7 that says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through faith. God, I pray that everyone in this room would be found as yours, redeemed by you, unified under the cross, carrying that out into the world, whatever you have called us to do, whether it's to run in a track meet, whether it's to play in the band, whether it's to go into the schools and teach, whether it's to be in business, to be a grandmother, to be a mom. May it all be for your glory.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.